Thanks, Rich. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> it was in 1989 that there was an earthquake. Uh, the Armenian earthquake needed only about four minutes total time to flatten the entire nation and kill almost 30,000 people. And moments after that deadly tremor ceased, there was a father who, after securing his wife at home, making sure she was safe, raced to the elementary school to look for his son. When he arrived, he found the building completely demolished. It was flattened to the ground. And he looked at the massive stones in the rubble, and he kept thinking about a promise that he had always told his son every night. It maybe at times been a little bit trivial to him. Um, certainly he meant to express his love and his concern for his son, but he always made this promise to his child. He said, no matter what happens, son, I will always be there for you. And for some reason, standing there, staring at the rubble of the school in which his son was attending at the time the earthquake happened, it rushed upon him this memory of this promise that he made to his son every day. No matter what happens, I'll be there. No matter what happens, son, I'll be there. And so driven by this promise, he went looking for the area closest to his son's room. He knew that his son had been, um, his son's classroom was in the back far right corner of the building on the north side. And so he went back to that area where the room was and he just began to pull rocks away from all the rubble. He just began to throw rocks out looking for his son. Other parents continued to arrive and they were sobbing and weeping for their children. And they began to cry out that it's too late and they told the man, come on, it's too late. You can't help now. Even a fire chief showed up and the local police begged him to give up, but the father refused. For eight hours he dug and then it became 16 hours he dug. 32 hours, and then 36 hours later, he still was digging. His hands were raw. His energy was completely gone, but he refused to quit. And finally, after 38 hours, he pulled back a stone, and he actually heard a voice. And it was the voice of his son. And he called out his son's name. He yelled his son's name. And his voice answered back, Dad, it's me. And then the boy said, instantly instantly once he said dad it's me he said i told the other kids not to worry dad i told them if you were alive you would come and you'd save me because you always promised no matter what i'll be there for you and out of that classroom of the 33 14 children were saved that day in 1989 there's something really powerful about that story you know, I just tried to sit in that story for a little bit. I associated myself as best as I could with the nation, the nation of the people that experience crisis. It's overwhelming for a country of people to experience a crisis where massive lives are lost. That's overwhelming. I certainly tried to associate. I know some and have some people in my family that are first responders that give of themselves to go into crisis to try to save. And I thought about the firefighters, I thought about the police, I thought about the medics that were just giving of themselves, the doctors, the nurses that were just caring for people. I thought about the parents 
being a parent myself, I just was overwhelmed by the thought of this story that something like this could take place. Most certainly, I thought about the father. It's inspiring to listen to his love, isn't it? It's inspiring to think about. Um, it, it just speaks into us as parents, and even as people, whether you have children or not, that um, keeping our word and, and seeking after people and loving people like that is just overwhelming. But just for a moment, I want you with me now to try to actually associate with the boy, the little boy in the classroom. Imagine what his experience was like. For some of you, this may be easy for you. Maybe not totally easy, but a little bit easy. Like maybe you actually know people in your life. Maybe it was your parents or grandparents or a friend or a sibling that when I'm telling the story about what happened with this young boy, you can immediately think of somebody who would do that for you. You can conjure up images in your mind. And for some of you, that may happen. And for some of you, it may be actually more difficult for that to take place. See, I think this story touches us because deep down, as we associate ourselves with, with that child, that it's actually, this is the kind of love that each and every one of us needs in our life. We actually don't need the emergency and the salvation. We need actually the presence of this love in our life to be fully alive, to live confidently, to have courage, to not always be afraid or anxious, but to just be assured and stable and secure as people. This is the kind of love that we're looking for. You know, romance sort of gets all the headlines and sacrifice sometimes takes up some of the pages. But it's this kind of love that this father had for his child that transformed his child's experience. In this trauma, his child said, if my dad's alive, I know he'll come. I know he will. And it changed him. You know, the Hebrews had a word for this kind of love. They had a lot of different words, a lot of different kind of words. But they had a word that it isn't always translated love. In fact, uh, Rich read from, was it New King James today? Rich read from the New King James today, and it translated this word to be mercy. The Hebrew word is hased, and hased it's translated, it's difficult for translators to know exactly what it means in all the context because it means things like grace and mercy and caring for someone and giving. But the best way that the Hebrews have been, ever been able to translate it into English, this word hased, is steadfast love. Steadfast love. You see, hased has a duration it's unending. It never stops. It never will quit. It has a disposition. This hased has nothing really to do with feelings. It has nothing to do with the butterflies and the jitters and the stars in your eyes, although all of that is very enjoyable. This concept of hased is action-oriented. It has everything to do not with what you say, but with what you do. This father in this story showed hased not with the promise he made to his son at night, but with his hands moving the rocks. Hased has a DNA, and that DNA is what we call covenant. And covenant is different than just contract. It's different than even just promise in the sense. Covenant says, regardless of what you do, who you are, where you go, I am, because of my character, 
going to promise myself to you. And I will love you regardless of how things go. I will care for you. I will serve you. I am giving myself to you. Steadfast love. God's has said is how he has promised himself to his people to always be the being in our life that is doing for us action, that which is good. He has promised to always be there. Psalm 118 is a celebration of God's hased, his steadfast love. This is the last psalm in the Egyptian Hael, which was Psalm 113 to 118, this collection of psalms that were recited every Passover by every Jew, wherever they were, when they celebrated the Passover. In fact, Psalm 118 is most likely the last song that Jesus sang before he was crucified. In the upper room during Passover, they would have read Psalm 113 to 118. They would have sang that together, probably echoing each other back and forth. And they probably finished with Psalm 118 before Jesus went to the Mount of Olives to be betrayed as he sang this song. And this song is born out of Israel's history of God always showing up and his steadfast love constantly delivering. It had its birth in the exodus, from the Egyptian exodus. And they sang this song. As you read through this, you heard um, words that were taken from Exodus 15 after they crossed the Red Sea. And they sang, it's the mighty right hand of God that delivers us. And then kings would go on and they'd add pieces to this psalm to finally bring it together, this beautiful celebration of what God does for his people. You see, it is this experience, God's hased, knowing the steadfast love endures forever. It is this experience that the psalmist wants all of the congregation, all of the people to know. You notice the very beginning there, it says, it starts and finishes with the same line. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. He is good for his steadfast love endures forever. And then he says, let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron, the leaders of the congregation, say his steadfast love endures forever. Then he says, let the God-fearers, let those who fear the Lord also say. that The phrase, those who fear the Lord, includes even those outside of the Hebrew race. They called them God-fearers, Gentiles that converted to Judaism in that day, who would come to the tabernacle or the temple and serve God. They called them God-fearers. And so he's saying, let Israel say, let Aaron, the people of Aaron say, let even the God-fearers say, what I want everyone to say, the steadfast love of God endures forever. This is actually the experience that God wants every one of his children, not just to know, but to believe and to live in that I have experienced and know that God's love is good, it's for me, and it's present. Easy to say, right? The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. His steadfast love is always here. It's easy for us to sing. It's easy for us to say. But what we know, whether it's experientially or through even research, is that people actually are having a hard time saying this. 
believing, I should say, experiencing it. Barna was researching this in 2012 and they began to ask people um, how much they experienced the love of God when they using experience, meaning like how much you actually believe that God's love shows up for you. And it was 64% of Christians just didn't really actually say that. I don't, I don't know if God actually does love me. I don't know if he actually shows up for me. I'm not sure I've ever experienced that for me. In fact, they even reported in the same study in 2012 that only 24% of Christians say that their lives are different because of God's love. 24%. What we're finding is that this, that Christianity has become the cultural acceptance of where we get our morality, but not the conversion to the God that saves us. And what the psalmist is trying to drive into us and teach us, if we'll learn from his voice, if we'll learn from his experience, is that we were designed to be people that walk out of this building and say, I have no doubt I live like this little boy in the story that the steadfast love of my father always endures. It's always there. And it always shows up. So simply, how do you really begin to experience this? So I want, I, want, I want to nudge you with a couple ideas of how you can experience, how you can begin to live in the experience of God's love. First of all, you've got to be a person who receives deliverance from your distress. This first section, 5 through 9, hovers around this idea of experiencing distress. Now, distress is not primarily a physical problem. It can come in the form of a physical problem like war or a health issue or the loss of a loved one. That's a physical problem. But distress is actually the emotional experience of a physical problem. And so it's described this way as things like extreme anxiety, overwhelming sorrow, intense and laser focused attention. Meaning you can't get your mind off of this thing that you're fighting with. It captures every moment of your mind. It basically is this. It's the suffering that comes when you suffer. You understand? And so the psalmist describes the experience this way. He says in verses 5 through 9, it's kind of like being in a prison. Like I'm captured to this problem. Whatever's going on in my life, it's captured me. I can't get away from it. I'm trapped to it. It can be overwhelming to its fear. It can seem too big to overcome. Distress is that problem that says, this is bigger than anything I can conquer. And distress has a sense of desperation. Where you cry out, as you see, the psalmist says, the Lord is on my side. He is my helper, meaning in distress, I know that I need help from someone outside of me, bigger than me, beyond me. And the psalmist shows us the opportunity, because if you live long enough, you will experience some version of distress. Some form of harm, challenge, suffering, terror, something's going to come upon your life that's going to be bigger than you can manage or handle, that's going to overwhelm you, that's going to want to make you downshift and shut down and back out and out of fear, run. And the psalmist does one thing before he does everything else. He says in verse 5, out of my distress, here's the one thing he did. 
I called upon the Lord. I called upon him. I called out to him. He calls upon him. The, the, the idea of calling means to summon God. Like, God, I actually need you right now. Not pray to help me just feel better, but God, I need you right now. And then when you call, just like when you call your parents to come pick you up, you call and then what do you do? You wait. God, I believe that you'll show up. I believe that you are able. I believe that you care. I believe that you're good. I'm calling upon you to help in my distress. And I'm going to wait for you to show up. I'm going to ask you to come. And maybe this is why we don't know what it's like to live in God's love. Because we don't really give God very much space to work in our lives too much, do we? Man, sometimes we're so obsessed with being comfortable that we don't really give God an opportunity to work. We don't give him a chance to restore the relationship. We try to fix it ourselves. We don't really ask him to lead us to the right job. We just find one. We get in a hurry sometimes and we just grab the next person to solve the next problem. And we ask and fail to ask God in our distress, will you please come and help me? We need to give him space to work. The second thing we need to, need to do is not just receive a deliverance from our distress, but we also need to see the discipline that comes from difficulty. In this next section, it repeats itself in verses 10 through 18, where the psalmist again brings up this idea of nations surrounding me, people wanting to fight me, basically. I've got serious problems, and yet God shows up again. And, and this describes real attacks, real problems, real enemies, and real salvation. But behind the danger, behind the problem, the psalmist sees something in verse 18. He says, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. You see, what he's saying is behind this real problem I'm experiencing, there is actually discipline in it, meaning I can be refined through my difficulties. The word discipline just literally means instruction with teeth. That's what it means. It means to shape someone through, th through severe regimen. It's sort of like exercise. You know, when you work out, uh, your muscles feel like, in the process of working out, your muscles will feel like they are getting weaker. You start out at the beginning, you feel maybe relatively, moderately, maybe not so much strong, but you start out feeling okay. And as you go through an exercise process, during that process of exercise, the pressure and the discomfort makes your muscles feel like they are getting weaker. But in that process, what's happening is you're becoming stronger. And I believe our addiction to comfort has robbed us of our opportunity to learn in our difficulties. We become almost offended when we suffer. Like, how could this happen? Listen, I, I live in the this, this world, in this time, in this place where I should never, ever have to suffer. The loss of my health, the loss of a job, the loss of a relationship. I shouldn't have to go through this. What I've been designed to do is just be comfortable. And so we lament our challenges, wishing only to regain our comfort. And we seek so quickly to solve this stuff so fast that somewhere along the way, we've begun to believe that life is supposed to be free of any difficulty. You're not supposed to ever have challenges. 
Now, each of those problems that you face in your life, each of these difficulties, whether it's loss of a job or health or a loved one or missing someone or having relational challenges, all those need to be dealt with in a godly way. But in the course of the storm, out of your frustration, don't let it convert to bitterness where you lose the discipline that God is trying to work in the difficulty. Because when you do that, you look back after you made it through and God's love has sustained you. When you do that, you'll look back and say, even in that most difficult moment, I wouldn't trade it. I think I've shared this with you before, but if I asked you to draw a picture of the five most important moments that have shaped you in your life, I guarantee two to three of them would be difficult moments. Because you know this, difficulty shapes you into the better person if you'll let it. But lastly, let me give you this, the last section, 19 through 29. You've got to receive deliverance from your distress. You've got to bring your distress to God. You've got to see discipline in your difficulties. But you're going to eventually have to experience, if you want to know that God's steadfast covenantal love endures with you forever, you're going to have to experience His vicarious victory for you. Now you notice in verses 19 through 29, the psalm turns from a single voice with a single problem and a single victory to a voice speaking of a victory for a nation. It's a national leader. He goes from a servant of God to the king of God, God's people. And now it's the king, and he's returning from a victorious battle. And so what would typically happen in those days is the king and his army, when they were faced with a challenger, would go out to war. And everyone in the city or the village would be left there behind. If you weren't part of the army and you sat there and you waited and you couldn't follow this king's story on Snapchat. So you didn't know what was happening and you're just sitting there waiting, wondering what's going on. And for days and then weeks and then months, you would look out over the horizon and you would wonder, is the king going to come back or is the enemy going to come back? Best case scenario, the king comes back and you win and you live free. The worst case scenario is you lose. And in that situation, you might be a slave or you might be dead. But either way, that's horrible. And the nation, the, the, the people of that village would sit there and wait. And they'd look over the horizon and say, who's going to show up? And this story here we see is that, uh, you know, these citizens are waiting. And they look over the horizon and they see their king returning victorious. And the nation then will go out and meet that king outside of the village. And they will follow behind that king who marches into the city center where the temple is to celebrate with all the people his victory that has become theirs. That's what it would happen. And that's what this is describing. As we see in verses 19, 20, and 21, where the king shows up and he says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter into them. Bring me into the center so that I can celebrate. And he says, I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation God. And then something strange happens, something kind of weird in this psalm. Look in verse 22. What we see in verse 22 is that this king didn't just have enemies that were outside the kingdom. This king, for, in this particular situation, had enemies inside the kingdom. He said the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
get a sense of this. The king is sitting there in this day and age saying, you builders of this village, you builders of the city, you leaders of this people, didn't think I was going to return. You didn't think I was going to be victorious. You rejected me as the cornerstone. You rejected me as, you, as the builders of this place. Now I've returned and now I'm the cornerstone. That's what he's saying. But that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Have you heard that line before? And he says that the king was rejected by the leaders, but he's now the cornerstone. And you and I get to share in the celebration because of what the king has done. And about a thousand years later, there was another king who looked like he would not be victorious. He left, and those that uh, were his followers, his village, didn't even stay to watch. They deserted him. This king sent his disciples in to find a donkey with a colt and bring it out so that he could ride in to the center of the city. And he sat on this donkey and he, ride, he rode into the center of the city. And when he did, the people around just couldn't help themselves. And they began to sing and to cry out. And they cried out verses 25 and 26 from this psalm. They said, Hosanna. Hosanna means save us, we pray. We'll look in verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then they say in verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. These people were crying out to Jesus. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were crying out, he is the king. And the leaders of that day did not like this. And Jesus quotes to them, Have you never read because you don't like me? Have you never read the stone which the builders rejected is now the chief cornerstone? And just like the king in this psalm took the sacrifice to the altar in verse 27 to, to appease God, Jesus our king takes a sacrifice to the altar so that the gate of righteousness can be opened for all people. But Jesus didn't take a goat or a lamb. Jesus the king walked up to the altar and offered himself. And as he offered himself, he opened up the way for all the congregation to walk through the gate of righteousness and enjoy the blessing of God, the steadfast love of God. And he leaves us with a song in verse 24. Keith already led it for us. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I want to tell you something. It might ruin the song for you, so sorry. We sing this song a lot, and usually what we mean by this song, I'm just speaking for myself, maybe you don't, maybe you got it already, is this is the day that the Lord has made. If it's five feet of snow out or 98 degrees, listen, God made this day, rejoice in it. So quit your whining, right? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. Let us be glad in it. And we use this song to speak of all of the days of creation that God has put in front of us as being days that God has ordained that we should enjoy. Now, that principle is definitely in Scripture. And I want you to believe that. And parents, you can use that to make your kids stop complaining. I'm definitely allowing you to do that. But listen, verse 24 means this. This day that the rejected king became the cornerstone is the day we rejoice in. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. Because he's my cornerstone. The day that Jesus was, re was rejected, offered on the altar, 
and yet came back as the cornerstone. Notice what he says in verse 23. When he became the cornerstone, verse 23 says, this is the Lord's doing. God placed Jesus as the cornerstone. And here's what that means. You've got to build your life on him. You've got to come to him as the cornerstone. Meaning he sets the direction for how the building is built. Meaning everything has to be built on top of him. Meaning that you've got to bring your life and carve out your life to fit into who he is and what he's done. Let me tell you, when you understand Jesus as your cornerstone, I think you'll begin to get over the problem of knowing, does God really love me? Will he really be there? Can I trust him in my distress? Can I find the discipline and the difficulty? And can I begin to tell people, ask me and I'll tell you, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. If that's a love that you have not yet experienced, it's available for you in Jesus Christ. We're going to stand and sing as Keith leads us in the song. We're available now. We're available always. Let's stand and sing.